was really good. Thank you, Gerald, Brett, Josie. Uh, again, serving the body as we continue to talk about. I just can't, I can't express that enough. Uh, during this month, we do this every May, and uh, service your relationship to your local church is very reflective of your relationship to the Father and uh, those roles of service necessary, essential uh, for a Christian. And I'll, I'll poke that bear a little bit when we get, get in the middle of the message. If you will, please uh, turn to Luke chapter 15 again. As you do, I think of even Faye Ritzy, who uh, most of you know, very, very faithful. And uh, uh, the ladies, you know, when you get to a certain age, there's certain things you can't lift anymore or, or carry or clean and do other things. And I think of how our, our uh, older ladies and men keep track of one another when they find out that someone's sick. Uh, they're given a phone call on their behalf, and there's so many different ways to serve uh, your local body of Christ. Um, having already read this long parable... Uh, of the prodigal son during our scripture reading, I'm just going to make a few clarifications before we look at it a little more closely. Um, You will notice, beginning in verse 11, it is long. This is a long parable. Therefore, it contains a complex story uh, involving a father, two sons. There's an inheritance that each gets. There are pigs. Of course, where there are pigs, there is pig slop. Uh, There's a robe of honor, a ring, even a fattened calf. And parables such as these lend to people making the mistake of employing extensive symbolism for the purpose of making a personal point or to forward an agenda. For instance, it would not surprise me to find Bible teachers who have identified the son whom the father honors as the Democratic Party and the one who is bitter as the Republican Party, and vice versa. The one who is honored as the Republican Party and the one who is bitter as the uh, Democratic Party. And such distortions through allegory, that they're increasingly commonplace with Scripture. I, I expect many would welcome hearing that pigs and prostitutes Uh, as they're equated to politics in Washington and other things, they would think it would fit just perfectly. But that is not how you handle Scripture. That is not how you properly handle Scripture. You and I aren't allowed to selectively assign values and apply them to Scripture in order to propagate our own storyline. You know what I'm talking about? And, And in the process suggest, well, this is what God's Word says. When really, it is not what God says. Uh, The father in this parable is not Uncle Sam. This is not an allegory of our nation's political conditions, nor is it uh, of any other far-fetched interpretation that someone might randomly assign to it. Luke is a gospel. A gospel is an account, a record of Christ's life. This section is a parable, an earthly illustration of a timeless, heavenly truth. So our responsibility is to discover and apply that timeless truth. Uh, This parable is in no way presented as being prophetic of the future. Uh, So this parable means the exact same thing to the church today as it did when Jonathan Edwards preached it 300 years ago. Its implication is the exact same today as 
the day that Jesus originally said it. And, and it has been the same at every point during the church's nearly 2,000-year uh, history. Um, with that, there is application. But first we have to get to the interpretation. Now, false teachers in the same way distort uh, historic sections of the Old Testament, assigning contemporary identities to, to ancient people and places. Uh, when they do that, they're attempting to function as a prophet. Don't fall for it, folks. That is not the way you handle uh, Scripture. Parables are frequently distorted in that way. Uh, there surely are prophetic sections of Scripture, uh, but gov- uh, Scripture governs how prophecy is fulfilled. For instance, 750 some odd years before Christ, Isaiah the prophet uh, spoke of one who was pierced for our transgressions, right? Who is he talking about? Jesus, exactly. There is a fulfillment there. And most scriptural prophecy has been fulfilled. Or a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, such as Christ's return, the final judgment, or the eternal state in heaven, Scripture governs that as well as how it is to be interpreted. What I'm saying is, because we've been in quite a few parables recently, I want to make this very clear as we continue and and encounter more parables as we go forward in Luke, that uh, Scripture, uh, we can't make things up. Scripture has to govern our interpretation uh, Probably a, uh, a good example of one of the prophecies yet to be fil- fulfilled would be uh, future Israel and how Romans 11 uh, tells us to expect a future role for Israel. And then we see uh, 1948, suddenly uh, Israel is being uh, reclaimed back into the land. That looks very very uh, interesting when you look at how prophecy works itself out. We discovered last week that Jesus is in this text explaining to the self-righteous Pharisees why he dines with tax collectors and sinners. That is the overarching uh, storyline here. And his explanation, we learned, is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He told them a story about a shepherd and his lost sheep. Uh, Next was a woman who lost her coin, right? And today in verse 11, we observe a father who has lost a son. Verse 3 indicates this is all one parable. The whole chapter. Particularly one parable, one story. So each enjoys the same interpretation. There is great rejoicing in heaven over just one sinner who repents. This is what the parable is about. That which is lost has been found. And you'll sometimes hear this parable referred to as the parable of two sons uh, because there are two in the picture. If you hear someone declare that, that that's fine. Uh, but, it, but it really isn't. It really isn't. The parable of the lost sheep was not about the 99 who represented the Pharisees who were too self-righteous to repent, right? Who was it about? It was about the one lost sheep. Um, the parable of the coin wasn't about the nine that we never heard about in the, in the lady's purse. It was about the rejoicing over that one coin that was found. And likewise, this parable, it's not primarily about the self-righteous son, who's a, again an image of the Pharisees, 
It is about the father rejoicing and throwing a party over the one particular son. He was lost. Now he is found. Verse 32. He was dead. Now he's alive. And they're going to party. So again, just like in the two parables we saw last week, uh, the two storylines last week, this parable and this rejoicing is celebrating the return uh, of, of, uh, or the repentance of a new Christian. This is not the return of a wayward Christian. This is new salvation. It describes repentance unto salvation. There's a similar story in Matthew 18. That describes a wayward Christian, but it's in a different context and a different time in Jesus' life. Um, this is repentance unto salvation and, and uh, where there is much rejoicing in heaven over just one sinner who repents. Uh, when that happens, the older brother has no desire to join this party. That's it. That's the parable. Should we go home? No, I wouldn't do that to you. We'd all get soft if we left too early. Um, there, there is much more. Uh, long passage, in, incredibly vivid picture of repentance unto salvation. So we do need to go through it, but I don't plan on getting lost in the details. There's just so much here. And you've heard this parable probably, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard this preached again and again. And it should prompt us to answer one question today if we get nowhere else. Am I a Pharisee or am I a son? Think about that. Am I a Pharisee or am I a son? And the first part shows what a son looks like, a son who has been saved. Let's begin with verse 11. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate that falls to me. So he, meaning the father, divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. You should immediately notice that the younger son asked for his inheritance. Uh, in that culture, that would be akin, that would be something like, um, I wish you were dead. He's saying, I'm not concerned about you, but I'm concerned about your estate. But in reality, we're going to find that it was the son who was dead to the father. It wasn't the father that was dead to the son. The son's heart does not love his father. Uh, and I might, might as well predicate it with this as well. The older son doesn't love the father either. Because he doesn't honor the father. Uh, we'll learn that he's pridefully in love with himself. That's who he really loves. He loves the one that he sees in the mirror in the morning. So what we actually have here is two dead sons and one loving father. Remember, a parable is an earthly illustration that explains a spiritual truth. What is displayed are two categories of spiritually dead sons. Who then are these two sons represented? Uh, who are they representing in the overarching narrative of chapter 15? As we look back to verse 1 and verse 2, you can peek there. You have the first in verse 1 the tax collectors and the sinners. 
And in the second verse, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees. Both are physical descendants of Abraham. Sons of the covenant, all right? Israelites by birth. And in verse 12, the father divides his wealth, the inheritance amongst his sons. Can someone remind me, uh, what is the the physical inheritance that God gave to Israel? Do you remember? The land. The land. God uh, gave to them, he bestowed upon Israel, the whole nation of Israel, all of the descendants of Abraham, a land rich to enjoy. Prosperous land, flowing with milk and with honey. A good land, bountiful land. So the father divides the inheritance between his sons. And the first takes everything that's given to him and squanders it. Completely squanders it. Verse 13, And not many days later the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now be careful not to lose the spiritual truth behind the parable. Moving to a distant country... Uh, in this storyline, it, it isn't discussing geography, all right? It implies moving far from the Father. Leaving to a distant country, the son moves far away from his father. So the younger son, he becomes the poster child of a prodigal. He is the prodigal son. Often you'll see this, this passage titled that. And, and you've had, likely heard this parable preached just numerous times Uh, by preachers on the radio, very good preachers who've expounded to you uh, much better than I can about how this life was squandered, implying all kinds of gross depravity and immorality. Uh, Remind me, who does this younger son, in context, in in Luke chapter 15, who does this represent? The tax collectors and blatant sinners. These received their inheritance in the land. They were Jews. Yet they departed far from God's law and were squandering all that God had blessed them with in the land with loose living, immorality, deception, cheating. But in verse 14, we discover the prodigal, he eventually comes to the end of his rope. We read, Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent himself into his fields to feed the swine. Uh, And and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that, that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men... Have more than enough bread, but I am dying here in hunger. Well, well, his his eyes have been opened to the realization that his moral corruption, it's decimated his life. Completely decimated his life. And, And now it's to the point where he's sharing an apartment with pigs. You know, pigs, this is something America can get. This translates through culture. Pigs are the epitome of uncleanness. Nothing could be more vile to the older Pharisaic brother, nor greater a violation of the law than living with pigs. 
It's the most obscene environment for a Jew. It's worse than, than most all fraternity dorm rooms. Not all. There are some good ones. It's a bad situation. It's a bad situation. And often you will hear, when you speak to those who are addicts, those who were um, hooked on drugs, hooked on uh, different types of, of immorality, um, when they describe uh, him or her, when, when they describe their turning point of coming to Christ, the point in which they, they come to know Christ, they'll usually describe a scene something akin to waking up in tears face down in a ditch. They'll just have the, the most miraculous change of life. And, and they're in a ditch. They're face down in a ditch in life. And, and they finally come to the end. Their eyes have been opened to what their life is. And, and everyone who's a Christian here today, this includes everyone who's a Christian, at some point in your life, you are prompted by the Holy Spirit. You are prompted by the Holy Spirit to, to acknowledge, you know, my, my life is filthy to God. I'm, I'm filth. Every sinner has come to that point where they realize between a holy and righteous God, uh, their life is filth, that, that conviction that life is unclean before a holy God. And that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of conviction of sin that we will face a righteous judgment. That's in John chapter 16. A realization that we have fallen short of the glory of God. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul reminds those beloved brethren in Thessalonica. He reminds them of God's choice of them. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 6. You'll like that when you go back and look at it. That is a reference to election, by the way. What served as God's evidence of choice? Paul explains. The evidence is how our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Full conviction of sins. The the evidence of the Holy Spirit... Folks, it's not a a wimpy general conviction. Nor is it just just a word. You go someplace and say, hey, got a word? It's not just a word either. It includes the word, but it's not just a word. It is one when the Holy Spirit convicts of sin unto salvation. It is one of, of divine power in unto conviction, a divine power of conviction, and spiritual conviction of God's righteousness and His divine judgment, that judgment is coming upon all sin. It's so powerful that you don't have to be a drunkard or a prostitute to understand it. You don't have to be um, completely in the ditch to understand when the power of the Holy Spirit is working. Scripture declares everybody's life is filthy before God. That's Romans 3.23, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter, folks, it doesn't matter if your life looks like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. 
if you have never come to the conviction and recognition that without Christ, you are just as filthy and unfit for heaven as the next guy. If that is the case, skip the middle of this parable. Because it does not apply to you. It won't mean anything to you. You could proceed directly to verse 29, if that were the case. That becomes your category, the self-righteous brother, who has no need to repent. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Because as it pertains to sin and salvation, God doesn't grade on a curve, folks. We've all fallen short. Rewards He does. That's why we're going to talk about ministry month. Rewards are on a curve, by the way. That's that's different different subject. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. For the rest of us who are Christian, every single one of us has come to a point uh, uh, of coming to grips with reality. We're unfit to approach the throne of God in heaven. We're unfit. We are sinners. And, and we, took a, we take a good look around. In, in our unconverted state, we take a good look around at our pig slop, and God the Holy Spirit begins to train us to seek after righteousness. We hunger, we thirst for righteousness. And we look around at our old friends for support. You know, pigs love pigs. They hang out with pigs. That's what pigs do. I was raised on a farm, I know. Pigs love pigs. But once you hunger, once you thirst for righteousness... Once you are convicted of sin and you seek divine righteousness and and you want to crawl out of that manure, those friends, they've got nothing to offer. They they have nothing that they can give you that will satisfy your hunger. But there's somebody who does. In verse 17, the younger brother finally comes to his senses. And he says, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here in hunger. He remembers that he has a father. A father who is generous. A father who gladly provides as much bread as his servants need. The ones who hunger and thirst in his father's household are always satisfied. Fulfillment of Matthew 5 verse 6 by the way. And Jesus said in John 6.35, I am, what? I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And in verse 18, we we find perhaps just the greatest picture, the the greatest painting, if you would like to uh, call it that, of repentance in all of Scripture. This is amazing. The son concludes, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Just make me a servant. I'm not fit. My life has been filth. Just serve me some bread, and I will serve you. Um... The son knows that his father is compassionate. He has seen his father feeding the servants plenty. He's very kind. He's a kind father. The son 
understands now I don't deserve a single thing from him. I've squandered everything he's given me. And he says, I will become your servant, Father. And I will bow my knee to you like the rest of the servants bow their knee. (laughs) So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son confessed to him, Father, I have sinned against you, against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Folks, does repentance describe you? Does that describe your heart? Because at some point in your life, it better have. Your heart better have turned to one of repentance. Uh, For Romans 2 verse 4 tells us, it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of righteousness, of the righteous judgment of God. Everybody's got to repent. Everybody's got to repent. In Acts 11, verse 18, Peter saw through the family of that Roman Cornelius that God, we are told, has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. God grants repentance. Repentance is a sorrow. It's a sorrow over your sinful past, an embarrassment, if you will, over your sinful past that results in a turning to God to seek a path of reconciliation, to seek a a course of forgiveness. Scripture says God grants it. Uh, Like faith, um, repentance is a fruit of Holy Spirit regeneration. The Spirit working in your life. It is a gift of God. Charles Ryrie uh, has passed away now, but great theologian many of you have heard, heard of. He, he described repentance and faith as, as two facets or two faces of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They're both together. You don't have a coin without it. You must have repentance and faith. And the Apostle Paul told Corinth, I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful uh, according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation." But Paul says the sorrow of the world produces death. There, there is a sorrow that doesn't lead to salvation. You see that all the time. It's a worldly sorrow. It, it leads to, well, a disingenuous apology. That's what the sorrow of the world leads to. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry I got caught basically, is what that sorrow looks like. I'm sorry somebody saw what I did. I'm sorry I ended up in prison. There's a sorrow that does not lead unto repentance, unto eternal life. That's that's not repentance. That's a worldly sorrow. 
The sorrow of repentance leads to salvation and a changed life. A changed life. It's a result of conviction of the Holy Spirit, and it's indicative of spiritual regeneration. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new, right? There's a change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Here's the rub. Here's why, Folks, if you don't get anything else today, if you don't get anything else, please take this home. This is really important. We don't hit it hard and often enough ourselves. This whole narrative, beginning from verse 1, is about the essential component over, of sorrow over sin and repentance leading to salvation. The whole chapter is about a repentance resulting in salvation. No repentance, no resulting salvation. In verses 7 and 10, Jesus said, There is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why does repentance bring such joy or cause such joy, result in such joy in heaven? It's because the angels recognize that this is the genuine article. This is uh, it's an indicator of genuine salvation. Repentance is. That's why angels rejoice over repentance. You can't take repentance out of the equation. Though many have. I'll continue. It is the repentance that verifies, indicates the lost sheep. It is repentance that identifies the lost coin. It is repentance that designates the lost son who is found. In each one, repentance is an essential component, and it is for salvation. Why is, it, why is this a concern? Folks, it is because, unfortunately, there are massive movements across America. Massive. Massive that identify themselves as Christian. They preach a gospel that suggests that turning from your past is not a necessary component of salvation. It is proclaimed that Christ died for your sins on the cross. And that's really good marketing, by the way. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. You don't want to pass this up, right? Is that a good deal that Jesus died for your sins? Oh, that's a good deal. So just believe that. That Jesus died for your sins and you're saved. And there are places containing thousands that are baptizing hundreds without any call to crawl up out of the pig slop. Still living with your girlfriend? Don't worry. God loves you. Jesus died for that. As if Jesus died so you can remain living with your girlfriend. Doesn't make sense. The success of your business model, it still relies on misleading customers or ripping people off. 
You know, God understands. That's why he died. So that you can rip off customers? Or continue to rip off customers? No. We know changes aren't easy. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. He changes us. He makes us a new creation. A new creature. The idea that loves, uh, Jesus loves you just as you are. And, and, and those remarks that declare God's forgiveness without the essential component of repentance, it doesn't result in a new birth, folks. There's no rebirth. Such a gospel is a fake gospel. Such a church is a fake church. I'm sorry. Some have even redefined repentance as entirely meaning just turning to God. Uh, the, the Greek word, the base Greek word, does mean to turn. That is true. But not just turn to God. When you're turning to God, you're turning from something. You're turning to God, and you're turning away from sin. Right? The true biblical definition of repentance includes turning from your sinful past. True repentance and salvation results, they both result in a changed Life. Now, it doesn't mean we reach Christian perfection in this life. I'm not claiming that. But it sure produces a distaste for the slop. There is a change to how and where we spend our money when we become Christian. We become generous and compassionate. Why? Because that's what our Father looks like. And we look like Him. Modernly, you support your local church because it is Christ's body. And the new birth causes us to respond cheerfully in supporting our church in every way, without coercion or without compulsion. For God loves us to be cheerful when we give. If you don't, you've got a spiritual problem. You serve, as we're in Find Your Ministry Month, according to your strength and your ability and according to your time through your local church, and you compassionately wash the feet of the saints, this suggests that a true Christian, a true Christian does not stand aloof from his church, does not forsake the assembly of the saints. It's just far too common, folks. As we talk about service and service, uh, find your ministry month, it's far too common for people to say, well, I serve and I give elsewhere. Not within the church family. They, They might have some other thing that they're loyal to. They might have you know, some other place that they give their money as they forsake the assembly. They might like a radio preacher more, so they send money to him rather than their own church. Folks, take this Find Your Ministry Month film. Take it seriously. Take it seriously. Read through Matthew chapter 25. It's talking about the body of Christ how we serve the body of Christ. We'll be rewarded according to how we serve the the beloved body of Christ. It's very, very important. Um, Everybody has a bad week. I understand that. Bad month. Some of your folks are recent visitors. Take your time, by all means. Um, But if this is not a church, we're going to, by the way, have a membership orientation coming up Uh, probably towards the end of the summer, where we invite people just to come in, go through the uh, constitutional statement, learn who we are. We want people to get to know who we are first. 
Um, then make your decision. There's never any pressure for people to join. But there will be that opportunity to come up uh, here probably August. But if this is not the church family where you can serve, where you can love, where you can give, and where you can celebrate the new birth that we have together in Christ, please come see Pastor Weiler and myself. We know of some good churches in the area. We'd love to introduce you to one. You've got to have a heart to serve and love your local church. Because standing on the outside, standing on the outside, it's unacceptable for a Christian. Outside of the family of the Father and beyond the celebrating of the house, folks, that is where this brother is standing. He isn't saved. We'll get to him in a minute. First, the saved brother. The father makes his official declaration in verse 22. He said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He has been born again. And then in verse 24 we see, near identical words to what we saw in the two previous stories in Luke 15. The father declares, He was lost and he has been found. And there is rejoicing, celebration over the returned son. And we learned last week that Jesus, as the good shepherd, he seeks out his sheep when? Until he finds it, right? He finds it. In verse 5, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who don't need repentance. Well, there's celebration when a sinner has, found his, uh, has been found. Who did we discover last Sunday had deceived themselves into believing they weren't the problem? That they didn't need to repent? Pharisees. The 99. They didn't need repentance. Or they thought. So they thought. There's no celebrating in heaven over them. This chapter started with them not liking the fact that Jesus was dining with sinners. Tax collectors. They don't like the noise created by that kind of party. They, they were grumbling to Jesus. They're saying things. You're welcoming sinners? You're dining with sinners? Probably said something like, Don't you know this isn't that kind of church? You know, there are some who they don't who don't like the joy. The sound of celebration, the joy associated with repentance and salvation. Who's left in our story? The older brother. There remains another brother. And there may be laughing, there may be rejoicing in the house, there may be rejoicing in heaven, but he is not a happy camper. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. Not dancing! The father surely didn't attend an independent fundamentalist Baptist church. 
what the older brother did. And it says he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring of these things, and he, what they could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the brother became angry. Can you imagine that? And he was not willing to go in. Wouldn't even go in. Wouldn't join the celebration. Wants no part of it, of the sinners being found. Why is he so furious? Here's why. It's because his brother was the bad son. In all these years, he's been convinced that he's the good son. And reflecting back to verse 7, he doesn't think he has any need for repentance. He's the good son. He thinks, you know, I've, I've always kept my father's wishes. The older son was a Pharisee. He figures all these years I've kept the law, the father ought to be celebrating me. But there's no repentance, and therefore there will be no celebration. No celebration for him. This older brother, there is no salvation, there is no celebration. Doesn't believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He doesn't recognize that by the works of the law no, no flesh shall be justified. Which means keeping the law can't save a sinner from hell. None of us ever kept the law. We're going to be talking about that this summer, summer series with the Ten Commandments. Do they serve a purpose? Yes. Is it to save? No. Well, indirectly. Like a tutor. Once you have sinned, you are categorically a sinner categorically lumped in with the sinners and tax collectors. Every single one of us, except Jesus. That's why you categorically need a Savior. So in the second half of verse 28, you begin to wrap this up. His father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends his friends the Pharisees. But when this son of yours came who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you've always been with me. All that, I, all that is mine is yours. You have the inheritance. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and begun to live. It was lost and has been found. Folks, both received their inheritance. The difference is the younger one repented. Twice the father has now stated his son was dead, but now is alive. Um, the mindset of the Pharisee doesn't rejoice in other people's being saved. Got no interest in it. Doesn't care that others are being saved. All they care about is how good they look. They'd rather draw attention to celebrate their pride of legalism. And in the sense that these two, in the sense that they two, these two remain brothers, it's not that they're both in the end redeemed. Clearly they are not. They are brothers only in the sense that as children of the Abrahamic covenant, they shared in the same inheritance. That's the sense which they are brothers. The tax collectors and the sinners, they were renowned for squandering that inheritance. Wasted it. Loose living. The Pharisees were notorious for striving to follow commands. Which one in the story is saved? Which one are you? Luke 18, verse 10. Two men 
went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's a really religious guy. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Which son remains dead? The Pharisee. Which one is alive? The sinner. For the son who is saved, don't fail to notice the result, a whole lot of celebrating on earth and a whole lot of rejoicing in heaven over those who are saved. You know, a church where people are actually being saved, it ought to be a happy place. It ought to be a place of celebration. It ought to be a place of rejoicing. There ought to be music and dancing. I love seeing people smile and rejoice. You want to see me, me smile? But it is, this is just the happiest place in mine and Rita's life. The church. The beloved redeemed who have been saved from death. They've been given new life. I was raised in a stoic Scandinavian farm household. We didn't get real excitable. Boy, Jesus is something to celebrate, folks. I'm glad we are a church that laughs, that loves. Should we celebrate? Yes, in season we should celebrate. Moderately. Moderately, please. (laughs) Folks, if the Spirit is moving, the Gospel is preached, and people are being saved, the church ought to be like God in heaven, celebrating with joy and laughter. I am very glad we do. We're going to pray, and then we're going to ask Pastor Weiler, do you got a song that's suitable for dancing? Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, how easy it is to trust in self, to, to think much of self, and Lord, to declare we're just more righteous than the next guy. Uh, Lord, thank you that you've revealed to us, all of us here, Lord, that uh, you are holy, that you are righteous, that there will be a judgment upon sin. And Lord, we pray together as a church that your Holy Spirit is convicting of sin. Lord, that anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would be saved. Lord, that your Spirit would regenerate, that uh, though they might have been dead when they walked through the doors, that they would uh, walk out alive and celebrating you. Father, uh, Thank you for uh, this lovely church. We think about uh, John Sanford. Pray especially for him as as surely as past. We think of Faye, uh, all those others that bring us joy, that bring us a smile and a hug. Lord, we're so very grateful for the celebration that you began, the one that we're going to continue until we see your face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.